Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Um, my name is Bron. Uh, just to give you a quick rundown of the chapel service. We usually go through a book, or we generally go through a book. We're currently in Genesis, and then we have five minutes of reflection time after we go through the book, which is simply a time where you can discuss as a table, or if that seems like the worst idea in the world to you, you just grab your phone and you scroll, and people will leave you alone, I guarantee it. If they don't, come and speak to me later, and I will reprimand them from the front. And, uh, and, and then we have a, what does that look like on Monday? How do I apply that to my life? going forward. So we're very privileged because Pastor Daz is going to bring that to us in a moment and, uh, and then we'll, um, yeah, we'll continue on. Uh, well, that's it pretty much. So you can either hang around, have a coffee um, or make a beeline for the door. Like Wayne said, I love that, Wayne. You can be part of the family or stand off as much as you like. I love that. Okay, so Genesis 4, let's pray. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would enlighten it to us, illuminate it to us, help us to know how to apply it to our lives in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, three weeks ago, which was what, April or something, wasn't it? Um, this year, am I right? Uh, the, uh, the, we looked at Genesis, we started Genesis and, and had a couple of the big themes in the opening of Genesis. We looked at the creation of the world and, and then the fall of man and then um, how God redeemed that even right at the start. We looked at the kind of the different genres that were, are there in the first three chapters that you've got God as Elohim. Can everyone say, oh no, 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 COVID, don't do it. Um, Elohim and, uh, and, and that he's powerful, majestic, mighty and this poetic form that it takes but then also Yahweh um, who is down in the dirt and creating and, uh, and, you know, some people say, well, there's two different genres. That can't be an author. That, that's got to be put together at a later time. Maybe, maybe not. As I look at that, I go, that is God's story right the way through the Bible. A God who is powerful and majestic and a God who also is willing to get down in the dirt and be with his people. So uh, I, I love that. Um, and, and it kind of finds its culmination in Jesus, God, who then comes and bees and suffers for the people. Uh, but people kind of go, well, it, it can't possibly be literal, it's all figurative, or it's true, but it's not literal, or it is literal. I have no problem with it being literal. I kind of, you know, in English at school was told, but I also have no problem with it being figurative, because some of the most powerful truths have been displayed through metaphor and analogy and allegory and I'm going to stop there. Okay, so also we had there um, that there was this entrance of the sinister figure that is against God and against humanity, the enemy uh, of our souls. And we had that he told a lie to the people and he said, God is holding out on you. The people believed that lie. They, they decided to go against what God had told them. And then there was a consequence for that. There was a consequence for the man. There's a consequence for the woman. There was a consequence for them in their relationship. There was a consequence for the earth. And, uh, and, and so it continues, and we head now with them outside the garden because God makes, clothes them. The first death is a death that God gives for the people, kills something to clothe them and make sure that they're looked after. And now they're outside the garden, they're outside God's protective paradise by their own choice. And we take up with verse 1 of chapter 4. Verse 1 of chapter 4 of Genesis. Now, I would encourage you to read um, at home on your own because we're going to skip through a bunch of the major themes of Genesis. Otherwise, we'll be here till 2024. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam had sexual relationships... 
as if that sentence wasn't awkward enough. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. Now, what happens there? Just kidding, people. Um, When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. So there's like this exclamation here. With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later on in the law, and this is going to get a little bit awkward now, but when a woman is on her period or a man has had a nocturnal emission during the night, they can't come into the presence of God the next day. And it's like this, why on earth is that? But, but the way that some scholars describe it is that there's this creation of life that is so, there's such a sanctity about life. That, 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 that it is so powerful and so incredible and, and so amazing that God would allow humanity to create life that, that actually to come into his presence, like we need to understand the, the amazingness of it. Now you would speak to probably parents who would beg to differ at sometimes about that fact and you would speak to parents who would be in full awareness of that and you would speak to those who long to be parents who would be in full awareness of that. But there's this incredible thing about creating life. And you think about Eve, right? She's just been taken out of the garden by her own choice and action. And now she's outside his protection. And she says, oh my goodness, God, you're still going to partner with me to create life. You see, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, it says that you didn't start um, when, you know, at 20 weeks or whatever it was in the womb. That's not when life starts. Actually, it's not when life starts when at that first conception. That's not when life starts. Actually, God says that life starts before you were even in your mother's womb. I thought of you and I had a plan for you. That actually your life started way back when in the life of God. You were not an accident. God had a plan for you way back before your mother and father ever even thought about you. So this sanctity of creation of life is right here at the start. And Eve's like, Oh my goodness, I've created a man. And later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. Uh, been there, done that, and so not so excited the next time. Um, okay, verse 2b. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. What's going on here? Why did God not accept the offerings of the crops, but he accepted the offerings of the lamb? It's obvious. God is against vegans. <laughs> and it's just clear right here. And, and then when, you know, he says, talks to Cain about it, and, and Cain says, what? What's wrong with mine? That is the origin of self-righteous veganism right there. <laughs> And it's never stopped. No, obviously something else is going on here. So let's have a look at it. What, what's going on? It's probably what's not here. So listen to this. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crop as a gift to the Lord. So that's very obvious and straightforward. Abel also brought a gift. The best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. So it's what's not there with regards to Cain more than what is there with regards to Abel. Abel brought his first and his best, and Cain brought some, which begs the question for us, do you bring your first and your best to God, or do you bring some of what's part of your rest, part of the rest? Do you bring your first and your best, or what's part of the rest? How do you, how do, you do that? And, 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 what, and so what God loved about Abel was that he brought first and best and he honoured God like that. And let's go to verse 6 because I wonder about 
even how did they know to sacrifice, right? This is the very first thing that we see of, of people sacrificing something to God. How do they even know how to do that? Well, if we think of this as an origin story rather than an origin account, it's pretty obvious that, you know, they're writing it a long time later and they're making sense of their sacrifice in the midst of the humanity's sacrificing and their practice to foreign gods and everything else. But if we're taking it literally, how do we understand this? How do we look at this? Well, part one reason could be that actually back in the garden, we saw that God sacrificed an animal for Adam and Eve to cover them. So that could have been like, oh, well, we see that God did that. Maybe that's what we have to do as well. Um, we could also see, um, well, some scholars say that, well, this is just symbolic of Abel being a farmer. I mean, no, Abel being a shepherd and Cain being a farmer. And this is like the progression from farmers to, I mean, hunters and gatherers to farmers. I oh, know it's all too confusing for me. So I'm just going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, which says here, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and showed God his approval of his gifts. And God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. So what we see here is that Abel was actually making an offering by faith. He was taking his first and his best and saying, God, I offer this to you as a gift by faith that you're going to take care of all the rest of my life. And, and this word is not so much sacrifice as offering. All through the Old Testament, it's a different word for sacrifice. So this is not a sacrifice that they're giving to the God. This is an offering out of their heart. What's the difference between sacrifice and offering? It's just motive. That's the difference. One is to, I feel guilty, so I've got to pay God and I've got to cover up my guilt. And the other is, I love you, God. I trust you. And so I give you out of my first and best to you. In one of the... 463 clips I've been sent about COVID-19 um, this week. I, I saw one that said, uh, I don't watch them all, I've just got to be honest with you. If you sent them to me, I've got to be honest, I don't watch them all. Um, but, but one of them I did watch this week was the guy was talking about the vaccine. I know we're all bored of it. I know we're sick of it. I'm just bringing it up just briefly. Um, a side note, I just wish we were as passionate about the gospel as we are about that. Can we just like stir that up a bit in our hearts? And uh, never seen more passionate evangelists both ways. Let's talk about Jesus in the same way. Um, see, you can bring it up in any conversation, can't you? Okay, I digress. Um, okay, so this thing of um, the vaccine, he's talking about what's your motive with it. He says that it doesn't matter. The vaccine's not right or wrong. It's your motive that matters. If you're not getting the vaccine because you're scared of the vaccine and it's fear-based, wrong motive. If you're getting the vaccine because you're scared of COVID and you're fear-based, wrong motive. If you're um, not getting the vaccine because you're insisting on your rights, wrong motive. Christianity has never been about insisting on your rights. It's always been about laying down your rights. Now, there are valid reasons to get the vaccine. There are valid reasons not to get the vaccine, but it's incumbent upon us to examine our motives all the time. And especially as we bring an offering to God, what is my motive here? Am I trying to pay something because I feel guilty? Or am I offering to you, God, because I love you and this is my first and my best and I trust you with my rest? Okay, verse 6. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, verse 8, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. 
One day you've got a vegan, the next day you've got a murderer. It's just a natural progression, people. <laughs> Don't make yourself angry. Eat meat. <laughs> I apologise to all the Seventh-day Adventists in the room. Veganism is excellent. Okay, so, so of course you don't go straight from one to the other. Of course you don't. You will in time. But you don't. No. So James talks to us about this. He says that, that temptation comes because of the enticement of our desires. So the desire starts with us. It's just a desire. But then we get tempted according to that and then we're enticed by that thing. In James 1, 14 and 15, he talks about this. And then that desire, it, it gives birth to sin. It doesn't just start with sin. It starts with a desire, then a temptation, then sin. And then when sin grows, it does its destructive work that we saw way back in the start in the garden. And it causes decay in our lives. And, and so when it's fully grown, it gives birth to death. That's what James says. It's this slow fade. It's not that you start out needing to watch porn every day. It's that you have a desire and then you give in to that desire and then you continue to give in to that desire and then that ends up in that place. And all of a sudden your relationships aren't as strong and healthy as they could be because it's been this slow fade. It's, it's you get jealous and so you start trash talking that person and then you want to control people's thoughts about that person because you want them to think like you think and then you murder them. Okay, that escalated. But, but, but from little things, big things grow, okay? And so we've got to take care of our thoughts. We've got to look after what we're thinking. We've got to take our thoughts captive and, and, know, and, and look forward to the trajectory of that and go, if this continues the way it is, if Cain keeps feeling like Abel is getting what he's not, where does that lead to? And so where it leads to is the same thing that happens in the garden. God asks a question, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Just heads up, and the answer to that is always yes. We are our brother's keeper. Um, we are responsible for each other. We don't get to just wash our hands and go, well, I, I, I've got no responsibility here. We'd love to sometimes, wouldn't we? And, and, and there is a place where there's an element that we need to for a time. But we always need to be able to answer the question, where's your brother? Cain gives no answer, and God pronounces a curse on him. Now, in, I would like to say that this is a consequence of, curse, of Cain's actions, but I acknowledge my Western framework in that. I acknowledge that I don't really understand curses that well. I acknowledge that I would like to think of this as a consequence because the thought of God cursing someone troubles me. I don't really know how to appropriate that. And I, one day I will study curses, but I'd rather nail love first. And I'll get love right, eventually, maybe. And then I'll study curses. And, and considering that they're not really that relevant to us, this side of the cross, because Christ was nailed to the tree and became the curse for humanity. So curses no longer apply to us at all. Anyone who curses us, we can receive as a blessing because we live under the blessing of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. So I'm not going to get too caught up in curses and understand the ins and outs of them because God tells me I need to love him and love others. And so I'll just get on with that for a bit if that's okay with you guys. Um, okay, so then he gets sent to the land of Nod where he sleeps for a really long time. Um, no, Nod means um, a wanderer, land of the wanderer. And isn't it true that the perpetually angry has no rest? Do you know anyone who's perpetually angry? Perpetually angry right now about certain things? Wouldn't it be true that they have no rest? There's no rest in their life. And so verse 17 uh, says this, and we're wrapping 
in two seconds. Cain had sexual relationships, relation, again, wow, with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Now, again, if we're taking that literally, just got to say, guys, it's his sister. You can discuss that during your discussion time. But uh, given the gene pool purity, that's how Answers in Genesis would explain that and describe that, that, that actually, you know, this start of humanity, that that was okay, that they lived a really long time and they had many offspring and, and there wasn't kind of this, what we see now as a result of generations of decay. So um, that, that, that happened. And then Lamech, his son, kills someone as well. So there's this perpetuation and we see how it continues. Now next week, Andrew's going to take us forward. The chapter ends with the birth of Seth, the third child, but I'm just going to ask Katie to throw up the family tree because I want us to understand how important it is to control what we're thinking and particularly what we think about other people. Here we have Cain and his line that is outlined in, in these coming chapters and Seth and his line, but I just want us to see the tragedy of this because this was meant to be a line as well, but because Cain didn't control the way that he thought about his brother, then that stopped with Abel. And that was the end of that. So take that down. That's a really cheery note to end on. And, uh, and we're going to have a, um, five minutes of just reflection. So you can just read through that passage if you like and, um, and take observation on it. Or you can discuss it with each other. Or you can, um, like I said, um, check Facebook. Okay. okay. Well, I'm going to bring you back. And... Uh if I'd known we were going to talk that much about meat and vegans, I would have had a sponsor for today, one of the meat producers in town. I just want you all to look towards the glass at the front. I want you to see how good a life it is to be a teenage girl in our church. On the deck, in the sun, and still in church. What a life. The only other comment I want to make on food today is, who thought that bringing spinach and a muffin together would be a good idea? What the... Um, we're comfortable with both of them, but not together. Just uh, something not right about that. Anyway, now that we've covered the big issues of the day, let's get to it. So, so Bron obviously brought us to Abel and Cain, and and uh, oh, sorry, can I just make one other comment? And that is, um, we will unveil very shortly in the after this service our new play equipment, which is great for the kids. just want to comment that I think there was like 100 man hours in that this week. And it's a mix of staff and volunteers working till midnight and other things. And so we thank God, you know, you all would have seen what's going on next door. That's why we got a sort of confused settings at the moment as the new roof goes on. And, and again, it's just a reminder, professionals are doing that job. It's just a reminder of, the contribution of many is what builds a local church. You know, people sacrifice, sacrificial finance, God honoring finance is making that happen. Hours and money are making this happen. In Armidale, we've just transformed the entire building and the grounds and everything. In Gunnedah, we're about to open a building. In Bendemeer, they're working every single Saturday, uh, putting in fences and um, ripping up floors so that we can build the best village church that anyone's ever seen. Um, well, we're not sure about that, but it's going to be a great place. And what we've said to them is, you know, we want you to think about this. If you were going to have a wedding, you'd want to use our chapel building in Bendemeer. And what the guys there don't know is that all of this sacrifice and, uh, of people like in this room is building Jesus' kingdom locally. 
and it's powerful and it's going to change lives. It already has and it will. And again, we give God someone and a people and a place that he can trust. And what they don't know is that little village church there, in the background, I'm personally negotiating with the Uniting Church that they will give us buildings so we can build village churches. And what we're getting right now is a model to go back to them and go, here's what we'll do. And so there's so much. When you and I partner together to build the local church, we're getting something done that has an eternal impact. We're creating a place that can be right at the heart of a community that people love, a place that people love to invite to, where they can encounter God's word, they can come to salvation, experience his Holy Spirit and the community of faith. So let's continue to move forward as we open up. Let's continue to build Jesus' church and let's see what he does over the course of this next decade. I think we've got very good times in front of us as it relates to what God is up to in the earth. So back to this. So Bron started to talk about Abel and Cain and um, I want to talk to you about something we see in Abel, and that is trust. Trust. Uh, we're going to see this image on the screen of a ute. And, and when um, I, I used to have a well-paid job with a new company car with Arnott's, and, and when I stepped out of that job, um, my job changed and I had no car anymore. And so my brother had to give me a vehicle because uh, we were broke. And so my brother gave me a vehicle. I don't know if we've got it there, Katie. Um, but essentially, if you can imagine, a, about a 1980, it's literally that ute and only marginally better. Like, really, really, only marginally better. And I used to drive around in that ute, and it would top out at about 85 kilometres an hour. I've been doing this long enough to know it's me, not the gear. So, and it would top out and you couldn't really push above 90. Above 90, it was unsafe. And so the level of trust meant the speed and what was possible came down. Contrast that with when, you know, and you would have seen, some of you would have seen the image, when we were in the US, Bron did the most wonderful thing for me and hired uh, for 10 days like a gigantic American pickup truck. My idea of the ultimate holiday is an American pickup truck with American-sounding modern country music playing on an open Arizona road. That is like... I, in fact, I didn't want to go anywhere. I just wanted to keep driving. And, and, but the thing about that truck is it could be trusted at any speed. In fact, the only thing that couldn't be trusted was me. It, its ability to be trusted far exceeded the ability to trust me driving it. When, when trust is low, what is possible and the speed at which it can happen becomes very low. And when trust is high, what is possible and the speed at which it can happen can become very high. And I have spent most of my ministry life obsessed, I think, with me being a person that God can trust and us being a church that God can trust. And how do we continue to grow that in every season? Well, I want to talk to you about it in your own life for the minutes that we have because I think that we can break through, break through personal ceilings of trust with God. Cain hit the ceiling and found his limit. Abel found the same place and it, it, it was meant to lead into next. So how to break through to new levels of trust with God and if we break through them with God it should translate that we break through them with people. If, if, if in my mind I'm raising levels of trust with God, but I'm diminishing levels of trust with people, I've probably got the settings wrong. So how do we break through? And how do we ultimately become the person 
that God can trust with anyone, anything, and infinitely more. Now, whether he gives infinitely more is his business. I've talked about that plenty of times. But the idea that he can, I'm excited about Jess. I'm excited about Jess's new role. It's a new level of trust. And what she does with that will determine about what God can trust her with and who God can trust her with into the future. And for me, that has huge potential. And for you. So this is this Exodus 23, verse 31. I will set your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. Heard it before, incredible promise, expansive, some of what they didn't know, some of the most oil-rich land in all of the world. Great promise. Exodus, in the verses before it, it says this, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Here's how I want us to think about that scripture. God will do something where he can trust and where he can't trust, where there's not currently trust, there we find our limits. It's true of his church and it's true of our lives. So here are some questions. Who, what and how much can God trust me with? Who, what and how much can God trust? Speaking about you and I personally, can he currently trust me with? And who, what, and how much can he not trust me with yet? What can God not trust you with yet? Because what I would love is if that in our lives we would go through that, that ceiling and to break through. Um, I was going to bring a passage of scripture, but we'll, we'll just use Cain and Abel this morning. What Abel did in that moment was establish trust with God and and here's the trust paradigm and some of you heard me talk about paradigm I want you to stay with me because I'm going to ask you a question even though you understand the principle his trust paradigm was it wasn't about him it was about God when he brings the offering before God this is about God this is about honoring God and and trust has a paradigm it's God cause and people that's the paradigm the, the the point at which my paradigm goes from God cause and people to about me is where my trust runs out does that make sense where my paradigm think about it with anything think about it with with think about it with money think about it with time think about it with the gifts you have take let's take something like a gift let's take someone exceptionally gifted in the room Daniel Coleman one of the finest bass players ever to grace the world and you know I remember a few years ago, Dan walked in one day, we are about to have um, church, and he said, oh, I'm not playing today. I went, why not, Dan? He went, well, I, I don't get a spotlight. I can see that our lightings have room for a spotlight, but I never get one. And really, if you think about my level of talent, I deserve one. And I was agreeable to that, and we put a spotlight on him, and Dan agreed to play that day. It was a blessing. No, but imagine Dan would leverage his gift. Imagine he'd leveraged his gift. And, and what can happen with our gift is we can use it for God, cause, and people, but there's a point where we tap out and we make it about us. I'm not getting what I want from it. You know, I'm not getting the praise I deserve. I'm not getting the thanks that it warrants, whatever it might be. And at some point, we just found our limit on trusted with God because I've made it about me. And so thinking about it in our own life, trust has a paradigm. Where are, where is, where are your limits of trusted with God? Where does it shift from about God causing people to about you? Is there a place? And if there is, what if we took the lid off that and opened up next? What if we 
What if we change that, where we live without limits as it relates to how God can trust us? So, so let me give you some thoughts in the moments that we have. Um, the paradigm of the trusted, number one, informs how we leverage power and influence. So, so where you have power and influence, um, how do you leverage it? Is it for God, cause, and people? Or is it for me? What's it for? It's hard for us maybe to fathom um, some people's power and influence, but wh who do you influence it for? Who do you leverage it for? My favourite story, and the story I was going to go to, is jo Joseph, where his brothers stand before him in the moment, um, uh, in, in a moment of time, and he's emotionally moved by the situation. These are the people who've betrayed him. And, and Joseph looks at him and says, don't beat yourselves up. It's okay. It's all going to be good. And in a moment where he has power that we can't fathom, he doesn't leverage even by 1% for himself. And the 1% has mattered, don't they? Not even for a moment, not even for a sentence, does Joseph leverage his authority and power to his own advantage. He doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't make them pay first. He doesn't point out their flaw. He, 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 he leverages his authority and power entirely for the purpose for which he's been appointed, which was for their deliverance. He was there in that moment, in the middle of all of his power and authority, he leverages it for God, cause, and people. You know, we have authority and leverage points in our lives, whether it's our money, time, talent, all kinds of things. And we raise a level of trust when, we, when God can know we're not going to make it about us. You know, and we're going to keep it about God, cause, and people. You know, the moment as a leader that I make our church about my ministry, which is incredible, right? We're agreed that it's an incredible ministry, one of the greatest you've ever seen. Like, the moment I make whatever we're doing about me in any way, even by one or two percent, the moment it comes about me, we limit what God can trust us with. But as long as, as, as a leader, bro, like, keep our hearts about God, cause, and people, there are more people that God can draw to his church. There are more churches that God can raise. There is more impact that we can have. And it's the same with your life, same where you live. It's not about more. It's not about scale, but it is about trust. That God might be able to trust you with anyone, anything, and infinitely more. What a place to come to. What a place to live from. And, and Joseph did that. That's where he came to. That God could trust him with next, but not only that, God could trust him with more. And so in terms of where you have power, where you have authority, who and what will you influence it for? Here's the other thought that goes with it around the paradigm of the trusted. Number two, it can be counted on when things cut deep. And this is big. Joseph is in the, the most difficult moment of his life where he's been wronged, he's been hurt. In church world, we'd call it he's been burned. And in his moment of being burned... He still looks outward and makes it about God, cause, and people. Now, there's a person that can be trusted. Uh, think about it in your own life, where you've been hurt. Where's trust been broken? Can God trust you with it? When, if that comes to you again, can God trust me with it? When people have said things about me that just plain aren't true. There, there was a man years ago. Um, I gave him a job because I still had a business even though oh, I didn't give him the job because I needed someone to do the job, I gave him a job because he needed the money and we took a pay cut. We bought him a car. We'd go visit him all the time. And as church grew, we then started to post on Facebook 
that Darren is like those um, money-grabbing preachers. He's all about the money. He's not about people anymore. He used to be, but he's not. I'm mean, stung, you know, like here he is to everyone we mutually know, telling that I'm a money-grabbing preacher. I knew the backstory. But even then, I had to be about him. Even there. It can't become about me. It's got to be about God, cause, and people. And if I can be about him in that moment, God, I know God can trust me with more moments like it where my name is ridiculed, but the kingdom goes forward. And for you, there's things that are going to cut deep as well. And those are the moments where new levels of trust are created and where we can become the person who God can trust anyone, anything, and infinitely more too. And so as I wrap today, my encouragement to you is, is, is that, Hey, let's continue to be. Let's take lids off. Life's short. As, as Die Case reminded me this morning, my hair's very grey today. You know, life is short. It's moving fast. It's going quickly. But whatever the case, let's continue to be the trusted. I, honestly, when I read about Joseph in my 20s, I thought, I want to come to the day where God can trust me like that guy. I want to come to the day where God could look at me and say, anyone, anything, infinitely more. I might have capacity limits, ability limits. I might have resource limits. He might have a different plan, but God can look at me and go, anyone, anything, infinitely more. I wonder where you, where, where does it tap out and it comes back to about me? And let's remove that ceiling in our life and let's make it about God, cause and people because with that paradigm, God can trust you in ways that we haven't fathomed yet. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.